Welcome to Community Cafe, where strangers become new friends. New friends become old friends, and old friends become family. Please join our table or take a seat at the counter. We're glad you came. Keep your airspeed up, the story of a Tuskegee Airman. Welcome to a special edition of the Community Cafe, and I'm your host, Katie O'Neill. Today's story is all about the unsung heroes of World War II, those young pilots who sacrificed in the air with the knowledge they might not go home and they might never be respected for what they did do, like the majority of the pilots in that war. Why? Because of the color of their skin and the treatment they received. Though they all wanted to do their part, it took years before they would ever be recognized for their heroism. We welcome today Harold S. Brown and Marsha S. or Harold H. Brown, forgive me, and Marsha S. Bordner to our growing number of honored authors who are recognized and bring to the table a story of a part of our history that was ignored for far too many years. Ms. Bordner is President Emeritus at Terra State Community College in Fremont, Ohio, and she spent more than 35 years committed to higher education as an educator and administrator. Welcome to the cafe, Ms. Bordner, Mr. Brown. Thank you. Welcome aboard. I'm going to ask a question to Harold right off the bat. And the reason why I'm asking it to you is because you are here to answer this question for me. When you were a young man, prior to enlistment, what was it like growing up? What was the atmosphere of the politics and the economics in the town you were growing up in? Well, to be quite frank, uh, I was rather privileged, really, having been brought up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, that was a far cry from what it was about a thousand miles south of me. Yep. Matter of fact, in my neighborhood, I had uh, Swedish people on one side, Polish people across the street, Jewish people down the corner, and behind us lived two Mexican families. So you're talking about integration. I was thoroughly enjoying that. So this was my, uh, pretty much my lifestyle as I grew up. Uh, the only <clears throat> the only real thing we ever ran into there was a beautiful hotel downtown Hotel Nicollet and uh, they did not want our trade but no one could afford the Hotel Nicollet anyway <laughs> so what difference did it make <clears throat> but we were all over downtown restaurants you name it so my growing up and whatnot uh, wasn't anything close to what it would have been had I been south of the Mason-Dixie line. It would have been an entirely different story. I totally agree and completely understand. I grew up in Missouri, so mm -hmm. I understand that Mason-Dixon line pretty yeah. doggone well. I know how people were there, and it wasn't anything like you're describing. However, that does set an unusual stage for when you get ready to enlist because you're in an atmosphere where you're comfortable with the people that live around you you're not used to being treated any different than anyone else is and then you enlist what 
What was your thinking? What was your motivation for enlisting? Well, <clears throat> I fell in love with this whole idea of flying when I was a very young kid, sixth grade, 11 year old. And I, uh, I can't give you a reason why, but I just fell in love with airplanes. And from that point on was building little novel airplanes. I could never afford a little small engine, so they were all propeller rubber bands you know, you wind up the... I remember those. We had fun with those. And let them go. I spent a lot of time in the library reading about uh, Randolph Field, Texas, West Point of the Air. And this, I lived and breathed. And uh, <clears throat> Mom used to, at one time, she thought I had some talent. So she wanted me to become a pianist, which I sat down and I worked at for a while. <clears throat> But then, when this big change came in the sixth grade, that's when I quit it all. I broke her dear heart. I'm but sure. My was my hero, though. And, uh, <clears throat> well, she finally came around to understand. But, uh, but this was it for me. Now, my mom and dad came out of uh, Alabama. My Very different world. My born in Jennifer. My mother in Talladega, and then my father relocated up to uh, Talladega, his mm -hmm. whole family did. So in the Great Migration, they got out and they headed north. Now how they wound up in Minneapolis, I will never know. Mom never told me how they got there. My dad didn't even talk about his side of the family, mm -hmm. but nevertheless they wound up in Minneapolis. and. That is the way it was. Now, when I came in and I took all of my exams after high school and I was selected for flight training, I can remember my mother sat down with me. Now, Harold, listen to me. You are going south, and this is the way you behave. And I'm saying, oh, come on, Ma, come on. No, now listen to me, boy. Listen to me, Harold, now. You don't know. I was born and raised in Alabama. Let me tell you what you're going to face. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and she sat down, and I said, listen. But I still didn't. You know, I went one ear and out the other. Typical you know, kid. Here I, was, you know, I had just turned uh, 17 when I graduated from high school. Took all the exams and things. <clears throat> I had to wait because my papers went to Washington, D.C., where the selection was made. And they selected me in December, mm -hmm. six months after I had set for all the exams and whatnot. So now I'm 18 years old, and I'm completely ignoring everything she said. Well, when I left Minneapolis, I took the Hiawatha down to Chicago, 400 minutes, Chicago down to Nashville. When I crossed the Mason-Dixie line, it was about midnight. I think you realized you just landed on Mars? Uh, it was a little different. As I walked up, you know, in, and I wanted to find out what track my train would be on to go down to Biloxi, Mississippi. So I went in, and there was a gentleman there. I said, sir, can you tell me what track the train for Biloxi, Mississippi will come in on? He said, uh, tell you what, if you go right around the corner, person in that one will take care of you. I said, thank you, sir. Went around. The same guy walks up and he says, can I help you, sir? I thought that sounds was strange. I said, uh, yeah, I would like to know what track 
the train from Lexington, Mississippi comes on. He says, well, it comes in on track four, and I thought, this is awful. And then I looked at him, but colored, and the other one said, white. So I said, oh, this is what Ma was talking about. Mm-hmm. And that was my first taste, and as I went off to board the train, you know, the military gives you all these fine traveling documents, Pullmans and whatnot. So, oh, yeah. So here was, you know, the Pullman porter there, right at the steps, you know, directing people into the car. And I said, I have a Pullman. He says, you do? He says, have you ever been south before, son? I said, no, sir, my first time south. He said, let me tell you something. He says, you see that locomotive up there? Yes, sir. You see those first two cars? You go up there and you find a seat in those first two cars, and that's where you're going to sit until you get to Biloxi, Mississippi. I said, well, okay. So I went up, no Pullman, just a plain car. And after the train started up, I understood why it was the first two cars, because all the smoke from the locomotives came in. Right into that. So I said, so this is what Mom was <coughs> talking about. That was my introduction to going south of the Mason-Dixie line. Not quite <clears throat> what you had in mind, I'm sure. Not quite. Marcia, when you started out writing this story, what was your mo motivation for going with this particular topic? How did you come about this? I met Harold really over 30 years ago now, and he wasn't famous at all at that time. Uh, but he started telling me his stories, and I'm an English major, so I know good stories when I hear them, and so I was just really fascinated by the stories he had to tell, and then over time I started collecting interviews and oral histories, and I started taping him myself because the stories were just so good. And then the day that I really realized that the Tuskegee Airmen changed the course of history, then, then I said, I've got to do this. I've got to do it because it, you know, they changed the course of history. This is different from other people's stories who have great lives, but they changed history and, and really led to uh, the civil rights of the 60s. But they started the whole movement by proving, they proved the generals and the military wrong. They showed that you can have, be a person of color and achieve, achieve just as well or even better than people, you know, white people. Now, where did you two meet originally? We were, uh, I was a dean at a community college in Springfield, Ohio, and Harold had just retired from a job, a vice president's job in Columbus, Ohio, and our vice president became the president, so he needed somebody to fill in for about six months. So he invited Harold over um, to be the acting or the interim vice president. And what a fortuitous meeting it I was. I guess it was. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, I've, I've always been a firm believer in God puts things in our paths for a reason, even if we don't know what they are at the time. So this was a meeting that I, I think was probably more predestined than you might imagine. The story of the Tuskegee Airmen became famous when they brought the movie out and they told the story. And I can remember the characters... Um, how they how they reacted to the white military versus the black military and not being able to understand why they couldn't do the same things or fly the same routes or use the same planes or why were they being mechanics and not being allowed to go in the air and finally they get a chance to fly. Um, if I'm not mistaken, 
the Tuskegee Airmen actually outflew their white counterparts. Is that not correct? Well, <laughs> not quite. Okay, tell me the <laughs> we truth all here. We the same program. They were as good as pilots as we were. <clears throat> now, the big difference was this. We were new in the business. Most of the white pilots, when they went overseas, they had guys who had been flying over there. Mm -hmm. So they had someone who they could immediately attach to. So he becomes a Wayne man, and he learns from an experienced guy who has already been there, flown 30, 40, 50 missions. Okay. When we came over the 99th, from scratch, we didn't have anyone. Now, when the 99th first went overseas, and they were the first squadron that went over on April 1st, 1943, mm -hmm. they went over and they uh, to North Africa. They were assigned to the 33rd Fighter Group, which was in North Africa at that time. Notice I said they were assigned to. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, they were attached to, okay. not assigned Okay. To. Because had they been assigned to, they would have been a part of the group. All right. And in the group, you rotate lead squadron, mm -hmm. which means as you rotate through the 99th would have been the lead squadron. And there was no way that Colonel Maumeyer, who was a seal of the 33rd, mm -hmm. was going to let these guys lead his group. So they had their own base. They were only assigned to the 33rd. They attached. would take off from there, attached. I'm getting these words screwed up here. Attached. They would take off from their base, yeah. eight, nine, ten miles, fly up, land up at the main base there. They would load the ships and mm -hmm. get them ready to fly. They go in for the briefings and they fly wingman. Mm -hmm. And that's how they flew for the first several months during the war. Now, were these ships. Uh, uh, the airplanes that you flew, were they attached to a ship? Did you have to go into the water at all? It was not Navy. It was the Air Force. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now then, when they went overseas <coughs> to NATO, uh -huh. and they picked up the airplanes, they picked up brand new P-40 mm -hmm. aircraft. <coughs> Spanking brand new. But they and didn't land on ships. She was oh, asking. No, no. Right. No. And that comes from my naval history right. where right. we no. actually used they Air didn't Force go pilots. Over by ship to uh -huh. Naples, but the aircraft, yeah. You'd ask earlier about the performance. Yes. And one of the myths about the Tuskegee Airmen is that they never lost a bomber. Mm -hmm. And they, they did lose bombers, but percentage wise, and we had to do research to try right. to make sure we're accurate in the book, they had a better. Um, statistical average for saving bombers uh -huh. the white bombers I think the white bombers had more kills uh -huh. but they were also not sticking with the bombers so they would go off chasing and they would get victories that way but the Tuskegee Airmen had the best uh, statistical record for protecting bombers right I see where there were a total of 930 how many surviving T Tuskegee Airmen are there now Marcia, do you know that answer? Well, it's we don't know for the total population because uh -huh. there actually were almost 15,000 support personnel because they okay. had their own hospital. They had, I mean, medics, MPs. They had everything as a totally separate base. 
but then the pilots were actually 992. Nine, um, okay. And 992, and now it's... And only a fraction of those went overseas to fight the war. The others stayed, and they were trained in twin-engine bombers. Okay. And after the war, Bill Davis brought the 332nd back home, and he took over what was then known as the 477. And he was getting ready to take them overseas in the to the Pacific area mm -hmm. when the war ended. Okay. So they didn't get overseas. So only 380 or so of us got overseas. Actually got to go overseas. Plus to fight and the And the pilots left, there's 16 or fewer. Okay. Now, out of that group, we kind of kept track of that yeah. group. And out of that group, there's only 16 pilots Okay. Left. It's good that we have an author that will take the time to do the research because war is hell. We all know this. Mm -hmm. And facts get misconstrued on a regular basis, as we've seen. And embellished. And embellished. Our politicians have done a good job of that for us, haven't they? Um, what was entailed in you having to do the research for this book? I mean, you have a wonderful storyteller, and you have the truth right here. But I know you went to a lot of trouble to find just the right facts, just the right try numbers. To, try to. We, we rely very heavily on um, a historian at Maxwell Air Force Base. Okay. Um, who actually read the book, and his, he's in charge of the archives, and his field of study essentially is a Tuskegee Airman. So he read it, and he would say, Marsha, it didn't happen that way. And then he explained why, and then I'd have to go to tell Harold, Dr. Hallman says it uh -huh. likely didn't happen that way. So we had many interesting conversations. How long did it take you to write the book? I would say close to three years. And again, it was not, I don't have background in history or the Air Force or the military. So I kept making a lot of mistakes. And so then the, like Dr. Hallman would correct it or Harold would correct it. But it was, uh, you know, if you're writing about something you don't have a lot of knowledge of, Mm -hmm. then you stand to be corrected often. Well, you probably had an opportunity to learn a lot more about oh, the Air Force than you ever wanted I, to know. I learned a lot about a lot of different things. How cooperative was the military in getting you the information that you needed when you didn't have the historian to count on? Um, actually, we relied on him fairly exclusively. When I started, I was reading all the books that had been written about Tuskegee Airmen. Sure. And I found so many historical inaccuracies that I just put them all aside. And so I came down to two books that I could find were documented by scholars yep. and were actually accurate because people, I learned one thing, if, if, I, if I learned one thing at all, it was just because someone writes it down and puts it on paper does not mean it's true. So I finally really set all of them aside because there were so many inaccuracies that I just couldn't depend on them. And we want it to be accurate as nearly as possible. Absolutely. Harold, how much has your life changed? How has it changed since the glorification now of the Tuskegee Airmen? Well, let me give you a little history. Uh, you talk about movies. There were two movies, the HBO movie, Tuskegee Airmen, which mm -hmm. had Lawrence Fishburne in it. Yes. And then uh, Lucas put out a movie about five years or so ago called The Red Tails. Yes, I remember that. Was, now, the first movie that came out happened to be the handiwork of my dear, very dear friend and my classmate, Bob Williams. 
after the war, he immediately went out to Pasadena. He's doing some bit parts and whatnot he picked up, and he did that somewhat on the side. But he wrote his story. Now, we all had the same general experience, but we all also had our own unique experience, which was unique to the individual. Sure. So he wrote his story and whatnot, and I read it, and uh, yakety yak. And I said, yeah, Bob, it looks pretty good. Then Bob decided, I'm going to make a movie. Well, Bob would work, and he would 500000 to cost the movie go up a million. Next year, three or 400000 to cost the movie was going up faster than he would ever. He could never raise enough Couldn't money. keep up. So a good friend of his said, Bob, you'll never get enough money to make a movie. I know someone in HBO. That's what I'm talking to. So they did. They made the picture <coughs> of the people down in HBO, and HBO said, We'll think about it. Ten years later, they contacted them and said, now we are ready to do it. They gave him a budget of $10 million. Bob went to the Air Force, had a couple of airfields out in uh, Oklahoma, and that's where they made the first HBO movie. Okay. Now, that one was a little close to being a documentary then, Lucas's film was, and it followed pretty much the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. Okay. But even in his movie, it was jazzed up a little bit. His movie came out in 1995, mm -hmm. and that HBO movie was shown an awful lot, regularly, over HBO. Mm -hmm. And that is when people started, well, who are these guys? Paying Tuskegee attention. Airmen? Never heard of them. And that's where we start picking up a lot of notoriety. Okay. And it just kept going and going. Then when Lucas came out with his movie, mm -hmm. now that was also generating more, more interest. So it all started 1995. The war was over in 1945. Mm -hmm. This is 50 years after the war. And now we are being recognized. And that's when it started, 50 years later, in 1995. And now people have begun to recognize us a bit. So did you become the uh, resident celebrity on the block and everybody well, had to have your autograph? Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yes. somewhat. <laughs> Tell him, Marcia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the simple answer is yes. Out of the 16 guys, at least... There's only about eight of them, half of them, which are really active. You know, yeah. like this, either writing books or else, you know, visiting talks, high schools, and all the rest of it. Uh, and the other eight, they are either illnesses, mm -hmm. they're not mobile enough, or else their wife is in that fix and they can't travel. Sure. So there's only about eight of us that really travel around uh, now. And that's it. And uh, we are dwindling very, very rapidly. Matter of fact, this has been my dear old friend. There were 32 POWs. Mm -hmm. I was one and Alexander the other one, and we're the only two left out of the 32 POWs. And Alexander just had a birthday today. He just turned 96 years old. Alec did. Wow. And uh, so. They're dying. So 
They're dying left and right. Well, I have so many questions left. We're, we're only at about 24 minutes, and I don't want to go long if you have someplace else you have to go. If you are willing and would like to continue the interview a little longer, sure. please let me know. I don't, I don't want to tie you up if you have some place that you have to go. We've got uh, a presentation at 5.30. Okay. Um, I am also going to be headed over to Building 3. Um, I am going to have an opportunity to meet with Mr. Bowen at, oh. from Way 1968 as well. I did an interview with him a couple of weeks ago. But this is a story that I think our young people need to hear. We have so much civil unrest between our youths who are ignorant of our history. And that for whatever reason, they seem to be not wanting to learn. And I, I don't understand that. We have such a rich history, and people have gone through so much in... In wartime and in peacetime, it seems like we're more in civil unrest than we should be. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that our youth today doesn't understand our history. They don't know what it took for them to be able to have the freedom to have that protest or to throw those rocks or to throw those sticks. Have you by chance heard of the rise of public citizens? I this have not, is sir. something that the Commemorative Fair Force is doing. <clears throat> Back in 1997, I was invited to come up to Minneapolis, Minnesota. A guy by the name of Don Hyes, a Navy commander who was retired, rather successful. He was in that chapter of the Commemorative Fair Force. He came up with the idea of, why don't we restore a P-51 C model that the Tuskegee Airmen flew and use it as a motivator mm -hmm. to fly around the different airports and that now and we'll talk about the lessons of the Tuskegee Airmen and use this to encourage them, keep the legacy going mm -hmm. and his hope was to get those lessons into every classroom in this country. The airplane crashed in 2001 and Hines was killed. They then decided to restore the airplane and it was finished in 2009. And now the airplane is still doing the same thing, only they've added a semi-trailer. The big semi-trailer, the trailer converts to a, a 35-seat panorama theater. Wow. And it's a beautiful movie because obviously not all high schools have the luxury of a nice airport. Well, that's true. That's true. But they do have a road, and the semi-trailer can get to it. They, they Actually, hundreds of thousands of kids oh. have seen the documentary, and if people are interested, they could just Google red, um, redtailsquadron.com. That would be a way of reaching them, but they travel. We saw them in Deland, uh, Florida, mm -hmm. one year. They were traveling around. We happened to be in the area, so they. But they are all over the United States. Now I have made a lot of appearances mm -hmm. with them. I can only tell you this: for the last five years, we have brought this exhibit up to Port Clinton, Ohio. There's some five, six hundred kids who come out over the three or four days we talk to them. Mm -hmm. They have been as receptive 
Matter of fact, I have just been almost amazed at how patient, how receptive they are. They sit there and they listen, and they'll ask the neatest questions. And I mean, this thing is really going off so nice, so smooth. And not only that, they then write me letters and talk about, oh, thank you for coming to our class or coming to such and such. And I got stacks of letters like this mm -hmm. from these kids. So if they hear the message, they seem to listen. Do you think maybe there's a void that they're hungry for? As, as an author, you've now become a historian. Was that something that you actually set out to do, or was it just a part of this that just you fell into and it just fit? It was, it was just a part, and partly too. I'm a liberal arts major, so I the history had to be there as a context for what was going on with Harold when it was relevant. Mm -hmm. So if something happened in the world at large, where you know his little world was here, but the bigger world was doing something yeah. else, it just seemed to me that it made his story more remarkable to, to know in context what was happening elsewhere. It does, it, it, it impresses upon the minds that there was a lot more going on than maybe most people knew about. I mean, we had our Rosie the Riveter, we, right. we had the women in the factories, but they really didn't know what was going on in the background. Yeah. And this is a, a wonderful story, and it gives an entirely different perspective to what the history of World War II servicemen were all about. What's what's in the future for you? Well, you know, let me add just one other thing. All right. Uh, uh, you know, when Truman became president, they changed the United States Army Air Corps to the United States Air Force in 1947. In 1948, Truman issued an executive order. He was going to integrate the military. That process started the following year in 1949. Mm -hmm. when he started the Air Force. And probably the big motivation there was the success that the Tuskegee Airmen had had. Mm -hmm. And in 49, we all went to the Four Winds. On the base, I lived in an integrated society while I was on that base. Now, when I left the base, mm -hmm. I had other problems. Right. But that continued all the way up until 64, 65, when this first Civil Rights Act was then passed. Mm -hmm. And that was 19 years later. Yeah. But here I had been living in this integrated society for 19 all years. All along. All along. And it was wonderful until I left the base, and then I had my problems too. But that went on for 19 years, and then the big civil rights. So we see ourselves pretty much as being in the forefront mm -hmm. of the whole civil rights movement. Well, and you had earned the right to be there. Mm -hmm. I think that um, with civil rights as it was in that time period, um, well... You mean in the 60s? Yeah. When, when people just didn't, they, they didn't want to bend. They didn't want to give. It was a matter of this is the way it's been, this is the way it's always been, there's no way we're going to change it. And then we have these wonderful people who come out of our history to say, excuse me, <laughs> moment please, I think we need to have chat here. <laughs> and you have the opportunity to go tell that story. So what's on the 
horizon for you? What's your next one? I don't well, know. There's got to be a sequel. We won't write any more books. No more books? We only, we only agreed to disagree about a hundred times. Okay. There'll be no more books about Harold in any no, case. No, okay. No. <laughs> now, if she wants to write one, she'll do it on her own, and I'll have there's, nothing to do with it. There's that. a lot that goes into putting a book together. So if I were going to write another book, and people have been suggesting some topics, it would have to be something that I felt really passionate about to be willing to kind of shut the door again and go back and write and rewrite and write and research. It, and it does take something, it, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. It's not, so, I mean, not that fiction doesn't. It's just a different kind of writing from fiction. This really had to be based on the facts as I could find them. Where can people find a copy of your book? There are actually several ways. That a lot of people would order, order through Amazon is an easy way. Our website also has uh, signed copies available. Okay. So people can uh, order from www.airspeedup, that's one word, dot com. So that's another possibility. And the University of Alabama Press. So there are multiple options. Sure. Now, with your military service, are you attached to any local chapters, such as the VFW or the DAV or American well, no. Legion? Well, no. TAF, they went national. Mm-hmm. And we had 51 chapters all down the country. I belong to the Columbus chapter. Uh, they have an annual meeting. Now, is this the VFW or the DAV? Yeah. It's the no. Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, the Tuskegee. Okay. Airmen. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, I don't know a nice way to, to say this, but they just aren't doing that much as an organization. The group I had talked about early, the Commemorative Fair mm-hmm. they're doing a fantastic job and they are the ones that is keeping the Tuskegee Airmen right out front. Now if people want to keep up with that, how do they, how do they get information about that? Uh, Google it. You know, Red Tail Squadron. Yeah, the uh, what yeah, the Red Tail Squadron dot com. Dot com. Okay. And it all pops up. Or I mean if they had our our, my emails listed on our website, and I can sure. come in touch with people because they travel. They're developing the schedule for for next year, yeah. and they okay. travel from coast to coast. So it just really takes people who want to sponsor them. Okay, what does it take to become a sponsor if someone is interested? Ten thousand dollars. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. Well, it, you <laughs> know, they got that airplane, and that thing uses a lot of fuel, mm-hmm. takes a lot of maintenance, and that great big truck. A lot of fuel, and they do a lot of traveling. And uh, it's not that hard and, to raise ten thousand dollars. To be honest, know. if you have corporate sponsors or mm-hmm. people who are supportive of the military, sure. So now that we've written the book, and now that we've closed this chapter, what's next for you? Golf. I'm going to sit back and just enjoy. I, I tell her I'm in the fourth quarter every day. Time out, time out. I need a few more days. And he loves golf. You know? Well, golf is good. Oh, yeah. And I'm nothing was fortunate that this book tour was in the winter because it would have never worked in the spring and summer. It would have never worked in the spring and summer. Well, I can't tell you what a, a true, genuine pleasure it is for me to be able to have you both here. Um, the story is wonderful. I think that more people should read about it. 
continue on our journey of learning where we came from and what kind of people we are and how we can change our futures. I sincerely hope that this has been the best thing for you and the best thing for you and continued success with what you're doing and we'll continue to keep our fingers and toes crossed and pray for more sponsors for you so that you can continue on your journey with all your endeavors that you're doing. Thank you. you. Marcia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Harold, it's been a pleasure. pleasure. Can I make a comment? Absolutely. Uh, You you did a great job. I will compliment you. You did miss a couple of things. Harold was not just a Tuskegee. He stayed in the Air Force for 23 years, and part of that time he was in the Strategic Air Command. I don't know how much you know about the Strategic Air Command. Not as much as I should, probably. But it was really a very unusual and unique operation. It was the force that was really kept us safe from Russian uh, attacks, uh, you know, nuclear stuff. And uh, he was a jet pilot, uh, B-47. He was the aircraft commander, actually. And he had a very, you know, magnificent career for 10 years in the Tuskegee Air So that was one of his accomplishments. And that's all in the book. Yeah, not, not necessarily <coughs> the Tuskegee Airmen. Then he left, he retired from the Air Force, and he spent 47 years as an educator. And that wasn't, um, you know, chopped liver. Well, that's why I kept asking him about uh, what happened afterwards, because I did read in there that he was a professor for a very long time. So I was kind of hoping you would expand on that a little bit. And I, well, I could have, but I just failed to do so. so that's that's okay. That's okay. I really think that okay. uh, it's just, it's a great story, and I wish more people would read it. Okay. You just keep saying that. Well, it is. It is. Keep your airspeed up. The story of a Tuskegee Airman. And I'm your host, Katie O'Neill, and this is Community Cafe. Once again, it's time to pour the coffee. Thanks for coming in. See you tomorrow. Remember, the topic is always hot. And, oh, hey, don't forget your change. 